Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, welcome to this episode number 339 of Charlotte's Podcast Beyond 300. I'm here with co-host uh, Sarah Archer and Hannah LaRue, and we've got a great lineup for you today. Yeah, we're going to start off with a great author feature with Jennifer Herrera. Um, she's a debut author who publishes weekly calls, A Writer to Watch. And we'll talk about her suspense novel, The Hunter, which Booklist calls a thriller with depth. Yeah, and up next, we have a two-minute tip from Paul Reale of Charlotte Lit called The So-Called Rules of Writing, Part 1. Yeah, we also have a, a writing topic discussion with uh, an author who's been on the show before, uh, Rick Blyweiss. Uh, he's author of Murder in Haxford, his second book, uh, second mystery novel. And uh, his blog post is titled, uh, The Differences Between Writing the First and Second Books in a Series. And then, as always, we're going to finish up today with our reading recommendations, book pitches, community and listener engagement, and what's coming in the next episode. But first, what's up with the podcast books? Uh, well, we're celebrating the release of book three in the Write Quote series this month titled Writing Process and Tools. Yes, we are. We're so excited to share these quotes. They're inspirational. They're practical. Lots of great tips in there. Um, we've drawn the quotes from over 500 podcast interviews with hardworking, award-winning, and New York Times bestselling authors in more than 33 states and five countries. Yeah, and this book reveals how writers really feel about the writing process and tools. If you want to learn more, just head over to our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, and click on the podcast books tab in the menu bar. Um, you can order this book online and in print wherever books are sold. Also, don't forget that the first book in the Write Quotes series, which focuses on the writing life, can be downloaded free online. It's our gift to the writing <laughs> universe. <laughs> so you can look for that link on the podcast books page of our website. Yeah, and you can also pre-order the upcoming books in the series now. Uh, when you do, you help support the podcast. Um, of course, here's the lineup. You have uh, you know about the first book, the one that's free. The second one was Learning to Write. And we're now dealing with the uh, writing process tools. But uh, coming uh, in June, the book is Storytelling, Inspiration, and Research. July, Writing Techniques and Characters. August, Writing Community Revision and Editors. September, The Emotional Writing Journey, and October, Publishing and Book Marketing. And if you want to receive all eight of these books for free, you can join our street team. The link to join is at the contact tab on the menu bar at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And also, if you just go to the podcast book, books page on the website, you can find a link there. All you have to do to receive all the books for free is to agree to leave short, honest reviews. Um, just a few words about how you felt about the books. These aren't heavy reads, but they are full of weighty tips and reflections. Yeah, and don't forget that if you become a Patreon supporter of the show for as little as $5 a month, we will give you all the books for free before they release. And that's in addition to the 150 exclusive interviews you'll be able to access on our Patreon channel on the craft and business of writing. Yeah, and we're really excited about this. Uh, it was fun to put together. And it's going to be a great resource, and we're going to be doing workshops in the future uh, around these books uh, in person, maybe online as well, because there's just a lot of uh, great content in there by a lot of uh, writers who've been down the path of uh, publishing, whether it be traditional or indie. So right after this, uh, we're going to start with Act One, our interview segment of the show. We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. 
This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, saraharcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. All right, here we are with Act One. Uh, we've got an interview today with uh, author Jennifer Herrera. The book title is called The Hunter. Uh, Sarah, tell us a little bit about uh, Jennifer. So Jennifer Herrera is a former philosophy student turned literary agent. She's fascinated by the stories we tell ourselves to live and the lies we cling to that sabotage our chances at a good life. She was born and raised in Northwest Ohio. Now she lives in Philadelphia with her husband, daughter, and cat. Hmm. Uh, we got a cat I person. Know. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I was just thinking I had a cat. <laughs> and a cat. And a cat. We got uh, dogs all around yeah. this uh, podcast here. Uh, all right. How about the synopsis? Uh, yeah, this book was really great. I loved reading it. Um, it's a suspense novel that follows a former detective as she investigates three mysterious drownings in a small Ohio town, um, only to come up against generations of secrets, including her own. Um, it's perfect for fans of authors like Louise Penny and Tana French. She. This is a haunting look at how the search for truth often leads back to the most unlikely of places. Booklist calls it a thriller with depth, and Publisher Wars Weekly calls Jennifer a writer to watch, which I agree with both of those <laughs> reviews. <laughs> really good book. Yeah, and also a writer to listen yeah. to, which is a perfect segue into what we're going to do right now. So let's listen in. Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I was I was just telling her beforehand. I read this re read her book, The Hunter, um, in one day, which our listeners know I'm kind of like the thriller. I love thrillers and mysteries. I was super excited to talk about this one. <laughs> um, before we kind of dive in to talk about the book, I kind of wanted to talk about an article that you wrote mm -hmm. for Crime Reads um, that I recently read, and it was really interesting. It made me think a lot because uh, you know the the point was to talk about why writers always kind of kill off female writers or uh, female people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's, I feel like I never really thought about that very much. And it's true. I read, like I said, I read a lot of thrillers and crime novels and I, I never really thought about the fact that it's not men very often. Um, and I think, what was it? You said it was 80% in, in real life. Mm -hmm. It's about 80% of homicides are male victims. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was the sort of surprising thing to me. So when I went to write this book, you know, you know, as somebody who loves mysteries and thrillers, I was like, somebody's going to die. Who's going to die? And so I closed my eyes yeah. and I thought, who's going to die? And I immediately pictured like a woman, like a young woman, probably a beautiful young woman. And, and I kind of had to take a step back like, whoa, where did that come from? Why did I just automatically think that, you know, if I'm writing a book, the woman has to die? And so I wanted to investigate whether, you know, where that came from. And so I started... I started doing some research and it looks like about 80% of the victims in homicides in this country are actually men. But if we look at, you know, some informal studies that I've done, um, women die in thrillers at a rate of like three times as many um, women die in thrillers as men. And so there's this discrepancy that I think is really interesting. It's like, why is it the case? that, um, you know, in real life, 80% of men die in homicides and in books, you know, that's a very different statistic. And I think we can right. ask ourselves that question in terms of, you know, why writers are automatically assuming that, that women should be the victim, why I was doing that. 
Um, you know, whether that has to do with some sort of implicit bias, whether, you know, like some people think it has to do with, um, you know, with women wanting to feel empowered and wanting to like rewrite the script of their own situations of feeling unsafe. But I think the thing that is most interesting to me is what this effect has on the readers. And I felt like as a reader of someone who, you know, loves these books because they give me this sense of security, right, in this very uncertain world, you know, you have you have a death, you have an intrepid detective, you have a solution, right? You get that sense of completion that, that is very comforting. Um, and so my question is, like, what is the effect for your readers? And I think, like, for me as someone you know, who is a woman, I feel like it often makes me feel like I'm more unsafe than I am. Um, and so in writing right. my book, I really wanted to flip the script a little bit. I wanted to have, you know, the woman be the detective, be the person with power, and have your victims in this case, there are three victims, and they're all men. They're all able-bodied cis men, and they're all, you know, young. And I thought that actually this was really great because it gave you this interesting tension. It's like, how could you kill three, like, strapping young men? Right. And for her, so your protagonist, Lee, the detective, she's super, like, an interesting person, very smart. She can kind of sense, th- mm-hmm. actually, it's sense of, she uses smell to kind of, like, <laughs> yeah. solve mysteries sometimes, which I think is really cool and different, you know? It's kind of a, an interesting thing, but she kind of, like, she doesn't have a whole lot of fear either, mm-hmm. I felt like, mm-hmm. you know? She kind of, like, I guess internally... I, I don't know. I think part of the what I really liked about her, too, is that she was sort of using, you know, she's trying to figure herself out throughout the course of the mystery, yeah. too. Um, so probably like seeing some areas of fear for her. But when it came to tracking these, you know, kind of going and diving into the mystery, she was kind of like, I got this, you yeah. know, <laughs> which I really liked that a lot. Um, and I think it, it is a really interesting thing with uh, crime fiction and just in general, the fact that I, th- I it kind of made me think when I read your article just about how, how did I feel as a reader reading about, you know, murdered women. Um, and how does it make you feel? I'm really is, curious. Yeah, it makes you feel scared. Mm-hmm. Like, it makes you feel really scared. And um, I think it, it almost just feels normal, though, after a while. Yeah. Like, you read... I, I don't know. I was thinking after I read this book, um, when was the last time I read a book about, like, a murdered man? I don't really know, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't really know. And I think um, it's almost like we're sort of just conditioned to expect that it's going to be a murdered female. Yeah. And, and, you know, you just said a, a beautiful young woman gets murdered in the street, a dark alleyway. And, um, you know, I think you also mentioned in the article about how a young woman wouldn't feel you know, in America, we can't, we don't feel comfortable walking down a dark alleyway with the black man, um, which is something else that you kind of think about. And, you know, in this book, you're not really afraid to dive into some of these more controversial yeah. topics. Yeah. I mean, too, I think which, that so like the, and especially like the question of race, um, is really right. interesting because you see the way in which traditionally like white women's safety has been used to, um, you know, to just like fuel racism. Because right. you get this, um, you know, you've been given this idea that like that black men are dangerous or they're criminals or something mm-hmm. like that. And so, um, you know, even though the vast majority of violence against white women is from white men, the vast majority of rapes of white women are white men. And it's like by by um, using women's safety, like teaching women mm-hmm. that they're not very safe, you're using um you know, that fear to weaponize um, as a weapon against, like, 
you know, things that you wouldn't necessarily right. support. And I think that that's really interesting too, um, just like the intersectionality of a lot of these questions. Right. I think, you know, that's that's super, it's interesting. And I think you also kind of um, dove into just the, like, I guess to set it up a little bit, um, this book takes place in a small town in Ohio. Um, a, lot, a lot of the community doesn't trust the cops. So they don't trust the police at all. That was a very, another, you know, you're, another thing that kind of, I feel like you kind of used fiction to create conversation about cultural issues. And that was another yeah. thing that I thought was really interesting. Um, so you can, can you talk a little yeah, bit about that? Absolutely. Just how you decided? Because I think that, you know, in Copper Falls, where the book is set, you have two different sides of the city. You have the side of the city that's very, very wealthy. And you're sort of like unclear how they got their wealth which I think is an interesting mm -hmm. tension of the book, like figuring out was this a bootstraps thing where you earned this or was maybe this wealth not originating from you? Um, and if that's the case, then, you know, exploring that. And then you have this other side of town, which is poor, like it's a lot of like either old decrepit houses or uh, like trailers. Mm -hmm. You know, I grew up in a trailer park, so I felt like like that was something that I could um, that I could point to and it could feel very real for the reader and I wasn't, you know, being exploitative. Um, but so your vision of what the police does I think, and who they help is different according to which part of town you're from. So if you're part of the wealthy town in this book, you know, you're very trusting of the police. You think they're there to protect you. Um, you know, they check in on you. They make sure that you're, you're doing just fine. And if you're not from that part of the town, then there's this very fraught relationship where you're like, what are you doing? What are you doing here? I feel like I'm being oppressed by your very presence. And so part of the book was really unpacking why those two parts of town um, have very different experiences of what the police is for. And I think that, you know, my goal with writing the book was certainly just to write like an easy mystery. People start from the beginning, they get to the end and they feel, you know, immersed. But I think in doing that, I couldn't help but infuse these ideas that are always turning in the back of my head. Like, and one of them being, why do people have such different experiences of, of life? Um, and especially as it relates to, to police, I felt like I couldn't write a book about a detective without delving a little bit into that right. question. Right. I think that's what makes it unique, though, is that you did, you know, you kind of use this fictional story in a fast paced mystery, because I think you definitely accomplished that, too. But you were able to use that to kind of create a more important conversation around a lot of different issues, um, which, you know, that's really complex and hard to do. So I'm curious to know, do you storyboard or how did you kind of flesh this story out? Oh, wow. That's a really great question. Um, you know, I was on I was on a podcast and they I, they described like what I did and they oh they said, oh, it's like the Groundhog Day method. <laughs> And so now I, I have to think of it in terms of Groundhog Day, where it's like, like I start with a story, like I start with something, and usually the thing that it starts with is some emotion, right, some emotional resonance. I really, really wanted in creating a female detective to have her feel very female to me, um, not just like, mm -hmm. you know, a woman playing the part of a man in order to have access to power. And so, you know, she's very, very in touch with her emotions. And I wanted to start with some, some scene that had emotional resonance. So you felt really drawn in. And then from there, it's just like, keep going, keep going, keep going until I get bored. 
And then I'm like, ugh, why did I get bored? And I delete all the parts that I got bored during <laughs> and then go back to the beginning and then start all over right. again and then keep going and get a little bit farther that time. And then, ugh, I found something that's like kind of boring and then going back forth, back to the beginning. Because I think for me, you know, I'm very aware of how short attention spans are, how short my attention span is, frankly. And it's like, I don't want to give readers something they feel like is boring them. Because if it's boring them, it's not giving them an escape. And I think that the number one thing that I wanted to do in writing this book was just to give people the sense of escape. I wrote a lot of it during like the very beginning of the pandemic. You know, we were all okay. sort of like in our in our little tombs. <laughs> in our houses I like that description tombs I know unfortunately (laughs) it felt like it did feel like that it was so scary um and at that time I was just like I just want to be able to be somewhere else for a little bit and so that was always the goal right it's kind of interesting too I guess that reminds me a little bit so you said you grow it grew up in Ohio Mm -hmm. so it was kind of was it did it feel like a homecoming yeah. To write this book a little bit? I think that one of the things that's really interesting with, um, you know, with genre fiction especially is you're always engaging in some sort of trope, like some sort mm-hmm. of idea that gets used in a lot of different books. And so the trope that this one starts off with is this like going home again trope. Right. And I think that's really interesting to me because, you know, I grew up in Ohio. I haven't lived in Ohio, you know, since I was 22. So for like 15 years. And I always think about that place. Like it, it's, it's, it's given me, you know, the, like it's formed the foundation of who I've become in so many ways. But I'm so different from the person I was back then. Um, and I, I feel like I've grown a lot. But at the same time, like there are, there are things that, about that place that I wish were in my life. And so I've always like, I've loved this idea of going home again because you get to see sort of, like how the new you fares against the old you and in Lee's case like Lee has a lot of emotional baggage um, that she's never dealt with and she has to go home in order to figure out why she's made some really big mistakes in her life and so she has this very fractured sense of herself like um, later on we'll do some sort of reading and I'll, I'll read a part that I think really encompasses like the two sides of her where you get to see how she does not have an integrated identity. She has like the old her and the new her and they aren't the same person in her head. Um, and so part of what this book is about is her integrating those two sides of herself so that she can move on um, with her right. life. I think that's what makes her super relatable too, Mm -hmm. is that you're sort of like reading this book and you're thinking like, as you grow up and we all have a hometown, we all have somewhere that we're from that kind of um, grew, helped us grow into who we are now, but we're not the same person as them. So it's kind of like which one's real and which one's not, because you also go through traumatic experiences, um, X, Y, Z, and that's something, I mean, Lee going through like a separation and kind of learning how to she's let go from her job from yeah. you know being kind of making erratic decisions and stuff like that and it's, it's kind of like I don't know unlocking some of those emotions that came with all of those things and yeah. figuring out who you are now which I really loved um I think this is a great time to do a reading though oh you're, yeah you're sure for it. um and it reminds me too of this this quote that I read a long time ago that has always been really powerful to me but it was like 
you always have to be on nodding terms with who you used to be or something like that. Like you can't, yeah. you can't be resentful or you can't be hateful of who you used to be because that's still you. And if you are, then that means right. that you haven't like made peace with yourself. And so anyway, oh, that I, I think that. has informed a lot that. of the book. Yeah. Cause I think that kind of gives me the goosebumps <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> I, didn't I really that. like that. <laughs> but it, I think it's hard because you kind of want to like distance yourself from like the you who yeah. made mistakes or the you who didn't know stuff that you know now. Um, and I think the real challenge right. is like how can you hold, how can you be compassionate for yourself? So actually you've inspired right. me to read one of the epigraphs of the book, which is, um, I'll start with that and then I'll set up the scene. But it's a quote from, from Carl Jung. And he says, but what if I should discover that the least among them all, the poorest of all the beggars, the most impudent of all the offenders, the very enemy himself, that these are within me and that I myself stand in need of the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved. What then? Uh, and so I love that. I love that. Quote. Wow. I love that. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let me set up like a big- the scene. Uh, in this case, you know, Lee's brother, Ronan, has just picked her up from the airport. They're riding from the airport in Detroit to northern Ohio with Lee and Lee's four-year-old daughter, Simone. And Lee is the one driving. And Ronan starts off by telling her she's missed her turn. So he says, Lee, you're missing your turn. (laughs) Um... (laughs) So she says, that's when I saw it. Sugar Ridge Road, skinny and black, ditches like gutters. As it rolled out the corner of my eye, my breath spilled over my lips. I felt my neurons like bells ringing. Instinctively, I adjusted my hand on the wheel. The space between heartbeats grew wide. The sole of my boot slid from the gas pedal to the brake. My arm wrapped over the sill to hug the door as we turned. The thrum of the engine pulsed against my wrist like a second heartbeat. The minivan nosed onto Sugar Ridge Road just as the tires lifted up on my side. We all slid to the right. Simone let out a cry. Ronan held on to the dash. We careened onto the meager stretch of grass separating the road from the ditch. I felt each bump, each growl of the engine in my head as a rush of blood. The tires screeched. Simone cried louder. Ronan bellowed. I wanted to assure them that they had nothing to worry about, but there wasn't time. These were only seconds, yet from those seconds, my skin, my blood, my bones knew we'd made it onto Sugar Ridge. We hadn't missed a thing. I eased the wheel to straighten the car. The horizon shifted back to parallel. The tires pounded against the asphalt. Wisps of hair fluttered away from my face. Ronan let out a breath. Simone drew hers in. They teach you stunt driving in New York City, Ronan said. His voice was half laugh, half condemnation. And in a minivan? Hell, I didn't think the old girl had it in her. I knew what Eric would have said, and Eric is her husband. Um, I was impulsive, reckless. I should have taken the long way and just admitted I made a mistake. Yet I also knew he was wrong. I had acted on instinct, but sometimes instincts keep you safe. I looked back at Simone. Her chest was rising and falling in deep, intentional breaths. She was, by some miracle, still holding on to Arnie. But there were tears in her eyes. I felt the pang in my chest. I hated that I'd hurt her. Did you know, I said, searching for a line from the animal fact book we read together, that armadillos are very fast runners? Simone met my eyes in the mirror. She didn't smile. They're faster than humans, faster than most cats and most dogs. Her chest rose and fell. Hey, I said, 
I reached behind to grab hold of her hand. You okay? She extended her fingers. We were too far away to touch. I'm... Look, Ronan said. Up ahead, a hand-lettered sign came into view. A blink, maybe two. Then both of my hands returned to the wheel. Then a quake cracked open my ribs. Suddenly, there were two of me. The adult detective and the teenage girl. The one with power and the one with none. The sterile sutures sewn tight and the wound that could never heal, only avoid infection. Both versions were real now, only I'd never meant for them to meet. The slab of oak was held up by twin posts. Welcome to Copper Falls. I love that. Um, the, the both versions kind of coming together mm -hmm. and having a, a mini like showdown almost. Uh -huh. I think that's just such a powerful thing. Um, I mean, the way you write, too, is so awesome. I think you're <laughs> such a beautiful writer. Oh, the descriptions so are just like, I mean, seriously. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, that's, I love that. But so I guess going back to Lee, just talking about a little bit more about her, do you feel like she kind of um, followed you around, like the character herself? Oh, yeah. Mind? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, people have asked me if Lee is me, and I'm like, no. But in some sense, like, I kind of, I kind of <laughs> wish she were. Because Lee, to me, is somebody right. who really takes seriously her intuition and her instincts. Mm -hmm. She says, sometimes instincts yeah. keep you safe. And I think that that's something that's so hard to do in modern life. It's so hard to just you know, sit with yourself and trust yourself and trust that if, if you right. have a weird feeling about something, you know, that's worth investigating. And so, right. you know, she sat with me as I wrote and I, I felt like, you know, as I was writing her, I was feeling more in touch with the, you know, with the sense around me, right? Because she thinks about things in terms right. of smell a lot of times. And to me that felt... Um, very instinctual, right. very animalistic, like, you know, I have a cat and my cat will smell my hand before she wants to go near me, right? So I felt by giving Lee a heightened sense of smell, I was allowing her to be in touch with those more intuitive, instinctual, animalistic sides of her. Um, as I was oh, writing, cool. I certainly felt more connected to that, like, side of reality, yeah, I also feel like sense of smell is kind of something that I always associate with like accessing your memories, mm. which I feel like um, I'm not sure if that was was that kind of something you kind of thought about while writing her because I feel like that to me, um, those instances where she literally was like sniffing out like you're <laughs> saying like figuring out a mystery with her nose, yeah, <laughs> which was really cool and different and yeah, animal animalistic. It was awesome, um, but it also kind of like spoke to her journey as far as just like kind of facing her past a little bit and maybe yeah. that sense of like the, the fact that she had that sense of smell like I don't know I always associate it with that kind of thing I love that and I think you're right like you can smell something you haven't smelled in years and be utterly transported yeah um yeah and I think too like a sense of smell right in addition to being connected to her memories and her like trying to get in touch with this older version of herself um, a sense of smell feels like it's very connected to certain types of womanhood for me as well. Um, right. You know, yeah. I have two kids. They're very little right now. But, um, you know, when, I'm, when I was pregnant, I had just like this very, very deep sense of smell. Um, right. And, and feeling as though when, you know, having, I guess, more estrogen and progesterone or whatever, which are, you know, these very like female centered yeah. hormones, they increase your sense of smell. I think I, somebody on the line may, may tell me I'm wrong. But so this idea of like wanting Lee to be so like undeniably feminine in these, in these, not like in terms of like wearing dresses, but feminine in, 
in these like bodily ways, I felt like she had to have a, a great right. sense of smell. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, she, I was just thinking, I, you know, when I was pregnant also, I, I feel like at the very beginning, especially, it's like you just are like, well, it's the first thing you feel. That's the first <laughs> thing like you hear. You're like, heightened. wow, yeah. <laughs> I am smelling everything right now and it's not great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's like a really abstract way of looking at womanhood, I think, mm-hmm. like as you're writing a character, just sort of like, I really love that. That's super interesting oh, to me. That makes you. me, I always feel like sometimes after talking about, you know, the writer's mind you just want to read the book again (laughs) you know now I want to you know think from your your perspective a little bit as I'm reading yeah you know one of the reasons like so in the same vein that like when I started to write the book and I realized that oh I had like assumed that the woman would be the dead one and then going back and being like oh I had assumed one of the other things I think I started to assume is that if you have a detective that detective is like this Sherlock Holmes sort of person who's like you know, deducting things based on the, like, the hard evidence in the room and feeling like that wasn't, you know, that was, again, like, um, like this cultural script that, like, somewhere I had inherited and that wasn't real Mm -hmm. to my experiences. And then, so for me, it was, how do I make a female detective who feels very, very female to me? And and making, you know, somebody... You know, another person I talked to had said that one of the things that makes her very female is that her insights aren't necessarily coming from things external to her. They're very internal to her, like being in touch with something inside of herself to gain access about how we think about the world. Um, And I thought that was, you know, something that in retrospect, I think I maybe was doing, but I didn't know at the time, but that made her feel very much like a woman detective and not a detective who happened to be a woman. Right. And a strong woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she doesn't have a lot of fear, as you said. Like, she (laughs) She doesn't, doesn't. like, have a lot of things that maybe we associate with with womanhood in in a certain sense. Um, But then again, it's like, to me, it's like tied to, like, the animal side of being a woman, not necessarily the, like, culturally inherited side of being a woman. Right. I think that's, Yeah. I love that. And again, I feel like I just want to reread it now. (laughs) Get new ideas. (laughs) Um, I'm curious. I I think we only have time for about one more question, but something I definitely wanted to ask you is that since you were, I know you were a literary agent at one point. Still am. You're a novelist now. You still are? Yeah, the bio is confusing. (laughs) I know that. (laughs) No, well, that's awesome. But so literary agent, novelist, you write contributing articles. You know, I saw where you're a philosophy student. Um, That's, I mean, a lot of different things so I'm kind of curious to know that after you finish this book like what would you tell yourself like as a young writer like you now as having all of these experiences what would you tell, tell your younger writer self oh wow uh so many things <laughs> but I think you know the most important one is just to chill out <laughs> to chill out I love that um because I think like as a young writer you feel a lot of insecurity about being a writer and you feel like there's this thing about being good enough and will I reach it and if I don't reach it that means I'm wasting my time and like you're very conscious of some sort of judgment that will be you know passed down onto you that's not real at all and I think that like to be a writer means that you are trusting that first off that like when you're super young you probably don't have the sort of insights that anybody wants to hear I mean, me at 22 versus me at 37 are just, like, 
very, very different people in the sense that like the things that I was discovering about myself at 22 are not all that interesting in retrospect. I think for me, a different 22 year old would be different. Um, and that like, if you can just trust the process and trust that you need to grow into the writer that you're meant to become, um, and that to trust that your subconscious sometimes knows you better than you know yourself, I think is probably another thing. Like when I, when I was younger, I remember the first book I ever wrote. I think it was probably 22. Uh, I wrote in like a month. I think it was like 70,000 words. I was doing like 10,000 words a day or something ridiculous. Um, Like writing from like the time I woke up until the time I went to bed. It's because I was so anxious about getting to the end. I was like, I have to prove to myself (laughs) that I can do it. I'm like, you know what I mean? It's just like, Mm -hmm. and it's not good ideas for me don't come that way. It's like they come from writing a little bit waiting a little bit, seeing how it feels, going back, writing a little bit, looking again how it feels, and, like, being in touch with the sense that, like, I don't know everything, and if I try to control all the parts of the story, then I end up with something that sounds like every other book that I've read. I need to, like, trust right. that there's something real underneath there that I'm trying to access, um, even if it doesn't right. feel like it at the time. I really like that. First and foremost, chill out. I think <laughs> all of us could learn from that. Yeah, I think we're all <laughs> like taught to Trust be in a process. rush, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And just like, and I think, you know, you, you bring up a really good point. And again, I could just talk to you forever about this <laughs> whole concept of just your brain kind of um, hiding certain things from you. You have like the subconscious yeah. layer and then you have like the in-your-face layer of your mind. Yeah. And it's just kind of like, it. It's it's not really a process that you can rush to just you know, to see that lower layer of things like that subconscious um, idea or, you know, what your brain knows that you might not know. Just I remember when I was in, like (laughs) when I was an undergraduate, I took this philosophy of mind class and they talked about some experiment where you had somebody with like, like um, some sort of like a blind spot in their vision. And they would say, oh, I can't see anything in that spot. And they said, okay, well, I'm going to hand you something. I'm going to give you an object in that spot and you should just reach for it. And so the, the experimenter would hand a cup in the blind spot, and the person reaching for it would shape their hand like a cup. They would hand them a ball in that blind spot, and the person reaching for it would shape their hand like a ball. Um, and they would do this over and over again, and they found that, in fact, like the person was aware of the object, but they didn't know they were aware of the object. And so ah. it was just like the coolest thing that has stuck with me forever that like, there really are things that your body knows that your brain does not register. Yeah. Like there's some sort of like communication gap between your between the sides of your brain. And so really, really digging into what that means if we're humans who don't always understand our own motivations and part of like the work is figuring out why, the, why we are the way we are, why our feelings are valid or why, you know, separating out. Like, you know, we were talking about how, um, you know, a lot of times – making women feel unsafe is being weaponized in other ways that we don't like, mm-hmm. right? Like, so teasing out the difference between what's intuition and what's like a cultural lesson that we've been taught from a young age and so we think is real but it's not. And like teasing out those mm-hmm. two groups I think is like so interesting and has to do with how um, how we grow into the people that we're proud to be. Oh, I can so see you as a philosophy. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, I was terrible at it. I was I terrible it. at it. Oh. No, I hope you write more. I really hope you write oh, more. Oh, thank I feel like you. Actually, so the many, second so book more. for this is under contract. Oh, really? Are she, so is it with Lee? Is it, yeah, is it it's with Lee. Lee's getting another oh, book. Oh, I love that. Oh, please keep me posted on that. Oh, absolutely. Super exciting. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so much for joining me virtually here today. This was, so uh, this was so awesome. Yeah, thank you. And everyone, go get the hundred. <laughs> yes, please. For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. All right, here we are with Act 2, Writing Topics, uh, which is uh, starting with Charlotte Lit uh, Two-Minute Tip, and we're going to have a blog post as well. The two-minute tip is from Paul Reale. It's uh, titled The So-Called Rules of Writing, Part 1. Let's uh, listen in. Hi, I'm Paul Reale, co-founder of Charlotte Lit, with a two-minute writing tip for Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is the first of a series of tips about the so-called rules of writing. You should be able to tell from the phrase so-called that I'm going to throw some shade at these rules. A shout out here to Sarah Archer, who gave me the idea for this series and helped brainstorm a list of these rules that writers run into. You've doubtless heard the advice, write what you know. When this advice is offered to new writers, it's given lovingly, I'm sure. Yet to me, it feels like a head pat. Don't tax yourself, young writer. Write what you know and you'll be fine. Set your stories in places you've actually been. Write characters who are like you. Write mothers who are like your mother. And so on. I don't think you should write what you know. I think you should write what you don't know. What you're trying to know. What you're trying to learn. What you're trying to understand about yourself and others and the world. I don't know a good writer who is not also an intensely curious person. We write to discover that which we do not know. Now, there must be some value in the advice to write what you know. It must have its roots somewhere. So let's think of write what you know as advice for the very new writer. When you're new to the art and craft of creative writing, there are so many elements to learn seemingly all at once. Characterization and conflict, dialogue and description, metaphor and meaning, flashback and backstory. You can't focus on everything at once. It's a lot like learning to swim. A kickboard allows you to focus just on using your legs while not having to think about how to move your arms, not to mention turning your head to breathe. Write what you know is a kickboard. And there's this. When you write, you will, of course, use what you know. I'm not suggesting you ignore all that your life experience has taught you. I'm also not suggesting you write a genre or form you don't read. Seriously, don't write mysteries if you don't love mysteries. Don't write poetry if you don't read poetry. Also, don't try to set your first stories in medieval France unless you grew up in medieval France. Write what you know for now, and when you're ready, become the explorer that all writers are at heart. For more two-minute tips from Charlotte Litt, listen to beyond 300 episodes of this podcast or visit charlottelitt.org slash tips. Okay, thanks, Paul. I wonder how many people out there who are writing grew up in medieval yeah. France. <laughs> I'm sure a lot. <laughs> yeah, a lot. They're just hanging yeah. on. They're hanging on. Um, 
Well, Sarah, sounds like you and Paul talked about this uh, idea. Yeah, we uh, we got to talk about it a little bit at an event recently, um, and I'm excited for the series. I think it's going to be a lot of fun to listen to, and I like that he chose this as the jumping off point because it's it's such a kind of meaty idea, and it's a little bit controversial even. Like, should you um, just stick to kind of what you know? Is it okay to write about people whose lives are very different from your own? And it even gets into like all the kind of authenticity and own voices questions, um, which are certainly complicated issues. I do think that as a writer, there's always this balance between drawing from your life and your experiences and your own feelings and emotions and your observations about people and people you know, but also unless you're writing an autobiography or a memoir, like you're going to have to write about things you don't know. (laughs) No matter what you're writing, you're going to have to venture outside of your own experience and use your imagination and use your empathy. Um, And I think that as long as you're making an honest effort at that and you're doing your research and you're getting feedback from people, then you should go for it, you know, expand your horizons. And that's one of the great things about writing is it lets you take yourself outside of your own experience and take your readers outside of their experience. Yeah, I think uh, these are good points. I think we should also keep in mind some of the positives of uh, writing what you know. I know, Hannah, that in the publicity side of things, that when people have you know some intimate knowledge through life experiences of certain things that they've written about, it sometimes can make for some interesting tangential opportunities on the publicity side, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I think when... Uh I always kind of take a look at the subject matter of a book, whether it's, whether it's a novel or a memoir or anything like that, because there's all sorts of things that you can kind of tie into the PR process. Just like, so, I mean, like your book, for example, the fact that it's about the mech deck and, you know, like historical fiction, you can kind of tie it into historical societies or, um, you know, groups that are kind of focused on that aspect of what happened back then, you know, Charlotte, super local, uh, to Charlotte, but I mean, every book, you know, there's something like that, that you can kind of tie into publicity, like using it in that way. So I definitely think that's, that's true. Yeah. And I was thinking about one of your favorite authors and Brad Taylor, because he's got that background in special forces and he writes these books that involve these special forces type characters. So he's kind of writing what Mm -hmm. he knows. Uh, now I'm sure he's, because I've read his books, he's writing other things that he's learning too. But having that grounding, I think, uh, uh, in that experience, uh, I mean, look, I wrote, part of my book is kind of a legal thriller, but uh, I couldn't have written those scenes without having right. been a lawyer for 35 years. So having a little bit of knowledge going into it, I think, can help. Um, so I kind of see both sides, right? I see the point is don't just rely on what you know. <laughs> Go do some research, you know, step out of there. But also, um, if you've got some inside knowledge, I love books that show me the inside baseball on a particular industry. Um, we've got one coming up uh, uh, with Stephen James uh, this month who um, wrote about a redactor uh, in the Pentagon. And a redactor is a person that sits down in the basement and goes through in response to these Freedom of Information Act requests and redacts information. I thought, well, that's an interesting thing to to make a main character because he has all this knowledge about what's going on in the world mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know it's it, it, i think having both is is great uh, so don't just write what you know but uh rely upon what you know to, to enrich the manuscript as well all right uh, good stuff paul thanks for that uh prompt for that conversation we're going to come right back uh in just a moment with uh, a community blog post uh be right back 
If you are an author who would like to be featured on the show, check out our submission process on the contact page of charlottemeaterspodcast.com. Please understand that given the number of submissions we receive, we can't respond to every submission or feature everyone who submits, but with the Beyond 300 format, we are featuring more authors in many different ways. You might be interviewed or provide us some audio content for us to play or participate in an author or marketing talk or get a shout out for your publication. One way to be sure to get a mention on the show is to submit a 750 word or less blog post to our community blog on a writing or marketing topic. If it's accepted, we may have you on to discuss the content. Just go to charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the community blog for details. All right, here we are with uh, our blog post uh, time. This is Rick Blyweiss. Uh, as I said, he was on the podcast before. The title of his blog post is The Differences Between Writing the First and Second Books in a Series. Uh, Sarah, tell us about Rick. Rick is the author of the award-winning and best-selling classic mystery, Pignan Scorpion and the Barbershop Detectives, and he al- the already acclaimed second book in the series, Murder in Haxford. He's also a contributor to the highly praised mystery anthology, Hotel California. Plus, he is an executive with Blackstone Publishing, so he has a lot of expertise in this area. Yeah, and uh, I enjoyed his first book, Pig Non Scorpion and the Good Barbershop name. Detectives, just because <laughs> such a unique, <laughs> unique title. A detective who solves mysteries with a bunch of people in a barbershop. So, um, yeah, so let's listen in to the blog post. When you write a first novel in a series, you've only got to be concerned with making it the best it can be. But when you write the second book, which will undoubtedly feature repeating characters from the first novel, it can be quite different from just writing that first book. For one thing, unless you're on a deadline for the first book, you had almost as much time as you wanted to craft it. But after that first one is published, you'll probably only have a year to write the follow-up book, a much stricter and shorter timeline. It is quite important for that second book to be better than the first, so that readers will not be disappointed, will want to stay with subsequent books in the series, and so that those readers new to the series will like it enough to want to read the first book. Another challenge you'll face in writing the second book in the series is that it must be self-contained and able to truly stand alone. Yet, it must make sense to anyone who hadn't read the first book. Plus, it must tie into the first book for continuity for those who did read it. As a case in point, I found that when I wrote Murder in Haxford, I had to recap the recurring characters who were in Pignon, Scorpion, and the Barbershop Detectives enough for a new reader to understand who they were, yet not so much that someone who was already familiar with them wouldn't be bored by rehashing. Additionally, in the writing of a second book, your character development must be sufficient enough so that the main figures in the book grow as human beings, while at the same time, you must make certain that you don't lose whatever makes them special. And along those same lines, the second book must feel fresh and not repeat things you have in the earlier book, including plot lines, while at the same time, retain whatever magic made readers enjoy the first book. Some of the advantages you'll experience in writing the second book are the ability to include new characters, evolve character relationships more deeply, expand the depth and backgrounds of the repeating characters, and devise new plots for them to be involved in. 
Another benefit that comes with a second book, and hopefully for future books in this series as well, is that you will have somewhat of an audience already built up for the book from those readers who enjoyed the first book. And that will enable you to further develop the fan base for both the series and for yourself, which will include expanding your newsletters and your social media's reach and followers. I'm sure there are other differences in writing a second book or more books in a series, but those are the ones I encountered. All right. I found this to be um, interesting and timely topics. I think about uh, diving into the second book in, in my series. And uh, so let's talk about this a little bit. Uh, what, what jumped out at you, Hannah, from the publicity side, uh, from what he said? Yeah. I mean, I love this post because I think it's, um, it's a hard thing to do to write a series in terms of marketing because it's like, okay, well, how do you market this book? Um, without totally giving away <laughs> what happened in the first one, right? So, I mean, if you're writing a series of even two, three, four, or five, it's just like he's kind of saying one of the key things is to make sure you don't give too much away from the plot lines or you don't really um, kind of backtrack into something that happened previously. You want to make sure it can stand alone. Um, but the key is, it's like, well, how do you do that? How do you, how do you do that? So I think for me, what I always think about in terms of marketing series is like focusing a lot on the characters. Um, so just kind of what is this character about? What is, what is their experience in their life? Like, how does it relate to, um, readers or local areas, things like that? Because, um, and if you, if you're able to do, which, I mean, realistically, it's, I mean, you think about like the Harry Potter series, you couldn't just jump in and read book five, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, you kind of have to, I think from a marketing standpoint, and sometimes it's a gift to be able to start, always start by marketing book one, because that way it's sort of more of a domino effect where it's like, well, you got to read book one. And if you like that one, there's like five more where that came from, you know, so stuff like that. So it's a nice idea to think like, okay, this could stand alone. And some series do that really well. And that's great. But at the same time, if you need, if you can't do that, which a lot of the time you can't just look at it more as like marketing the series as a whole versus just the one book. So, but it's tough. It's a, it's a tricky thing. Yeah, well, I know that, um, Sarah, you've written uh, the novel, you've written screenplays. Um, one of the things that jumped out at me as I've written the novel, and, um, you know, you got some good feedback and I've gotten some good feedback. One of the things that uh, jumps out at me is it's got to be better than the first, and that's a little bit frightening, right? Yeah. <laughs> you, you spent two or three years writing this other one, and now you got to write another one that's better that one? I mean, surely, yeah, you want to strive to be better, but it, it puts some pressure on, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think this post was really interesting. I mean, I've never written a series. I think I would have assumed that like, oh, it's probably easier the second time around, right? Like you've already got the characters, you've already got the world kind of set up, you know, the toe and you can just kind of jump in and write it. But he's right. There are a lot of additional considerations and pressures that you're under with the second book that may not apply to the first. And I think that's relevant also for kind of like you were saying, Landis, just writing a second book period um, or publishing a second book, even if it's not in the same series. I think a lot of those same concerns about, well, now you might be on more of a timeline with publishing. Um, now you might have some kind of existing audience who you want to both satisfy and make sure that the book is not too different from the first one, but also give them something that's different enough that they're not bored um, and that they are more impressed, hopefully, because once you've already set a certain standard, you, you kind of have to do better every time <laughs> to keep your readers mm -hmm. impressed. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of deceptively tough, I think. 
the thing that gave me, uh, you know, a little hope here about it um, in, in response to this uh, concern about it has to be better than the first is what he said toward the end, which is the reason you, write the, you wrote the first book to begin with, which is uh, you can spend more time with the characters. You can bring in new characters. You can evolve characters. You can put additional situations in front of these characters that you love and see what they do with it. And that's the reason you started writing the first time. So if you focus as much on that and don't worry so much about whether it's going to be good or bad or indifferent, um, it will be better the more you revise it as you go. But uh, don't get, just have to tell yourself, and I'll tell myself, don't get stuck with this idea that uh, this first draft's got to be, oh, so much better than that, mm -hmm. than that last book you wrote. You know, just start and have a good time with it. Come up with an interesting plot. Uh, come up with uh, something fun for these characters to do. And, you know, the reason I wrote a reti uh, retirement community setting is so that I could move any kind of talent into that retirement community that I need to solve the next mystery, right? So if I need if I need somebody that has a certain skill set, they're going to move into my retirement community. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, just, just in time. We just we just tap tap them on the shoulder and say, "Hey, we need some help uh, solving this uh, particular mystery here." So, uh, yeah. So that's the fun part of it. And uh, Rick, thanks for focusing on that because I, I think sometimes writers don't who write a series, um, you know, <clears throat> struggle with this idea. And maybe that once you get that second one in, then things might become you feel comfortable with the characters, and then it's just a matter of thinking about what are you going to put in front of these people. Uh, for that next uh, that next adventure. All right, so we'll be right back uh, in just a moment with our Act 3, which is book recommendations, uh, listener engagement, and what's next. We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER and claim your free audiobook. All right, here we are in Act 3. Uh, we've got some book recommendations first. Uh, we'll start out uh, with, with Hannah this time. Hannah, what you got for us? Yeah, I'm recommending Dreamland by Sarah Dessen, who is, uh, you know, mostly a YA writer. Um, she was one of my favorites when I was a YA young adult. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I still love her so much. Um, You're still a this, young adult, I Hannah. I am. Yeah. I've, I've uh, shameless, you know, I've, tried to get her on this show multiple times sarah if you're listening <laughs> i would like to speak with you but no i love her i think she's so amazing dreamland was the first book i ever read by her that i recently reread um and it's about an abusive relationship for you know within a teenage relationship which i think is a really important thing to write about and kind of share those stories because uh especially psychological abuse um you know it's something that you don't really hear as much about when you're younger and you kind of just get roped into these crazy situations thinking it's normal um so i just remember reading that when i was younger and thinking like okay this is something i should probably it was good to read that because you realize this is something that actually happens you got to watch out for these things and um the characters are super relatable and um it's just really well written and i think it's just a powerful read and she's just i love her so again sarah <laughs> <laughs> I'm right here. <laughs> but yeah, it's very the good. The fun, the fun line right? open, yeah. <laughs> only only yes, for Sarah. Just okay. for her. Uh, so uh what you got uh, yeah. speaking of Sarah? What you got, Sarah? Uh, yeah, well, that, that book sounds super good. But um, I'm also recommending an old favorite of mine, A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole, <laughs> which is one of my all-time favorites. Um, it's it's literary fiction, and it won the Pulitzer, but if you're not 
typically into that. Don't be scared off. It's also like one of the funniest books ever written. It's hilarious. Just the way that Tool creates the characters and kind of how he turns a phrase is so unique and just can be really, really funny and witty in the writing itself. Um, the main character is this man named Ignatius J. Riley, who is kind of like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but he imagines himself to be this great intellectual and sort of looks down on everyone. Um, and he's an adult, but he lives with his mom and he's totally dependent on her. And now for the first time, he has to get a job. So the book kind of chronicles his attempts to to work and the people he meets along the way. Um, it's very entertaining. And I think in the end, it's also very touching and moving and it's thought provoking. And it's just a totally unique and wonderful book and a classic. That's great. Speaking of classics, uh, I'm picking books this month that have been challenged in schools resulting in temporary permanent bans in school libraries. And this this episode, um, I'm focusing on As I Lay Dying by William Faulkner. Um, it's one of his shorter books, and uh, I know that Faulkner gets some criticism for having sentences that, that run on for pages. Uh, but this particular book, um, I felt like uh, uh, it's very approachable. Um, it, it's not too long, but uh, it's it, you get into these uh, characters um, – a man uh, is is being taken home to be buried, and there are all kind of uh, obstacles in the way uh, to that path. And it kind of reminded me of a scene in my favorite uh, book, A Lonesome Dove, after Augustus McCray dies and his, his longtime friend Call has to fulfill his promise, which he thought was the dumbest thing he'd ever heard from his friend on his deathbed which was take him all the way back to Texas after they'd made this cattle drive all the way up to Montana and bury him beside that little tree, beside that little river where his uh, sweetheart was. And so he has to take him back, and all these things happen along the way. But it's also a lot of introspection that happens as well, which is part of what happens when you're on a journey by yourself with someone who's dead. (laughs) So, you know, it's an interesting book, and because it's banned, I want you to go out uh, and read it if you had not read it yet. And I want to add one more here because it's May. It's May 13th. Uh, we're going to probably have uh, this author on the podcast uh, in the future here. Um, David Fleming is a senior writer at ESPN, and he's come out with a book called Who's Your Founding Father? One Man's Epic Quest to Uncover the First True Declaration of Independence. And we know about that because that's the yeah. Mac deck. And apparently he's taken this from a very funny approach uh, uh, in writing uh, this book, and I'm really curious to find out uh, more about it. He's going to have a book launch uh, at Lost Worlds Brewing in Cornelius uh, on May 20th uh, with a book and beer release. Sounds similar to what we did uh, with Deadly Decorations. Uh, he's going to have Mech Deck Honey Ale brew with a splash of water from Freedom Spring, where the original founding fathers apparently gathered to pen the Declaration of Independence. I don't know about that, but uh, so creative. I love that. Yeah, that's more about it. Uh, but he's the author of several books, um, and he's gotten some really good praise from uh, other writers. So um, it'll be interesting to see what he did. One one man's epic quest to uncover the first true Declaration of Independence. I think what he does is he goes around and, and explores all these locations where these things happen and talks about it. So it'll be, it'll be fun. We'll have him on the podcast in the future. All right, let's see what Mark West has to offer this week. Hello, this is Mark West with the storied Charlotte Block. I recently watched a program on PBS, part of the American Experience uh, program, about Zora Neale Hurston. And watching that program reminded me of this wonderful children's biography about 
Zora Neale Hurston, written by Charlotte, children's author named Alicia D. Williams. Her biography is titled, Jump at the Sun, the True Life Tale of Unstoppable Story Catcher Zora Neale Hurston. Hurston was such a fascinating woman, and Alicia does an excellent job of really presenting her life and her interest in folk tales and her interest in African-American culture to an audience of children. For kids who are interested in biography, I highly recommend Jump at the Sun. It's a great book. You jumped out there at the end. Way to go, Mark. <laughs> Appreciate that. Um, Oh, we got uh, we got a little elevator pitch here um, from Ellen Lopez. Uh, let's uh, listen in, and then we'll uh, find out how you can submit your own elevator pitches. The new book, Raising Julie, by Ellen Lopez, is a disturbing yet beautiful story about a young girl's unexpected life journey along the condemned road of child neglect. All right. Uh, thank you, Ellen, for that pitch. Uh, we're getting some good pitches in these days. And uh, Anna, tell us, uh, tell our listeners how they can uh, submit their own pitches. Yeah, you can just head over to our website on the, I believe it's the contact tab. You can submit your elevator pitches um, that way, 30 seconds or less. Um, very easy through SpeakPipe. It's a lot of fun. And you can show us some of your personality. <laughs> Bring them in. There you go. <laughs> Personality with uh, eight exactly. vowels is kind of just <laughs> always. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, Sarah, we, you know, talking about our street team as we've uh, done here for the podcast books, uh, we ask our street team members to tell us a little bit about themselves. Uh, we just had uh, someone join our street team and uh, she shared something with us as part of our news and announcements. So why don't you share that with us? Yeah, so this is from Rita Pendry, um, who I think also just gave us an elevator pitch in the last episode. Um, but she left the following feedback, which we wanted to share. She said, I enjoy the podcast and I support the work of Charlotte Reader's podcast. CRP gives writers a way to get the work, word out about their work, and it gives the community a way to learn about authors in every part of the writing world. Such a valuable resource, and I want to do my small Sweetie. bit, um, which is a really lovely thing to say. And we totally appreciate having her Rita. on the team. Yeah, thank you, uh, Rita. Um, She's been on the podcast. She supports the podcast through Patreon, and she's uh, been active here with her own elevator pitch, and uh, it's it's great. And and listener, listeners, you can you can uh, support us, you know, just by listening uh, and telling others about the podcast. You can support us by being a Patreon supporter. You support us by you know buying these books, and if uh, you get on the street team, we want to give you these books. And the reason we want to give them to you is because you can help us uh, spread the word by leaving honest reviews so thank you for that um all right well uh, in just a moment we're going to tell you what happens next you can subscribe to charlotte readers podcast wherever you'd like to get your podcasts we're on all major podcast platforms and the best part is it's free oh and if you like what we're doing please leave us a review because when you do we travel much farther and wider in podcast land 
All right, Sarah, I'm about to cue the music here, so uh, tell us what's coming in the next episode. Sure. So next time we have debut novelist Adele Myers and her historical fiction novel, The Tobacco Wives, which Reader's Digest said is sure to make waves with its compelling characters, feminist undertones, and empowering story. Publishers Weekly calls it a sparkling debut, and New York Times bestselling author Fiona Davis describes it as a story of courage, of women willing to take a stand in the face of corporate greed, and most definitely a tale for our times. I actually just saw this book advertised at Barnes & Noble the other day, so it's definitely getting out there. Um, and then we're going to feature author Stephanie Jones, author of Giving Gal, in our blog post titled Working as an Author with Dyslexia. And we're going to have a thought-provoking Charlotte two-minute tip, plus our elevator pitches and book recommendations. All right, good stuff coming. Uh, Hannah, take us out of here. All right, everybody, just read on, write on, and rock on. <laughs> <laughs>